You still have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 2? Luke chapter 2, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at different uh, events surrounding the birth of Christ, the first advent of Christ. And this morning, we're looking at the shepherds and the angels. Next week, we'll think about uh, the wise men from the east. The third week, we'll take a look at Mary and Joseph. And the fourth week, we'll look at the Grinch. See, making sure you're awake. Uh, fourth week, we'll talk primarily. We'll be talking about Jesus every week. That's kind of what we do. I'm kind of a one-trick pony, but uh, that fourth week, we'll talk about him in particular. I was thinking about this uh, because the Portland Trailblazers are so terrible uh, this year. From what I've heard, I don't really watch. But let's say, for example, let's just say, for example, they had an open spot on their roster, uh, the list of people on the team. And they decided, um, you know, they've announced that here in Medford, uh, uh, in, in fact, even in our gym, they're going to hold it right in our, they're going to have a tryout for somebody to fill the empty place on their roster for the, Port, the Portland Trailblazers. Some of you don't know, Portland Trailblazers is a professional NBA basketball team, uh, allegedly, uh, in uh, Portland, and uh, I should be nice. So, I mean, wouldn't that be good news? It's good news. You get to try out for the Portland Trailblazers, right? That's kind of good news. Now, for most of us, it's terrible news. Why? I mean, there's no chance any of us are going to make the, I mean, not, there's no chance I, maybe a few of us would, would have a fighting chance. And none of us are going to make the, the Portland Trailblazers. So it's good news in the sense that you have a chance, but there's no chance, isn't there? It's not really good news at all. Hey, there's an open spot on the Trailblazers. Come out and try out. Good news. You get, a, you get to give it a shot. That's not good news. Now, it would be good news. Say, for example, the Portland Trailblazers won the championship at the end of the year, they won the, the, the championship series. And after that, they came to you and said, there's no tryouts, you're just on the team, you get a championship ring. Well, see, now that's good news. So what do you want me to do? Show up at the press conference, they're going to interview you, you're going to get a ring, you're going to get a gigantic check for millions of dollars, and we might even make you the MVP. I'm sorry, what? I mean, that, that's, that's sort of, I mean... Even me saying it, it, it seems a little bit nonsensical, doesn't it? Well, that would never happen. But the difference between that and the other, the other illustration I gave is that's actually good news. And because somebody has given you something. I'm going to tell you at the beginning what the sermon is all about, so that way I guess if you fall asleep or think about other things, at least you heard it at the beginning. This story is all about good news. And the, and the good news the shepherds get is more nonsensical than you being offered a position on the Portland Trailblazers after they won the championship. I mean, this is, this is the whole point of what we're going to talk about this morning is it's just simply good news. And, and, and good news, it's done, there's nothing to do. Good news, great joy. Good news, great joy. Why in the world is Jesus coming? Why in the world is this announcement to these shepherds good news? And why would it bring great joy? I mean, we all know the story. So, so what is it? Is it just because it's Christmas time and we like wreaths and hollies and Christmas tree and it brings us a little bit of seasonal cheer? That, was not the, that wasn't the goal at the time of these events. And I want us to really think about it as we get into it. Good news, great joy. Two things. Two points. You can keep track of two points, right? First of all, God is in control. Who was in charge of Rome when Jesus was born? 
Luke chapter 2, verse 1, in those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree. Caesar Augustus was the man. Uh, this was, by all uh, estimations, the golden age of Rome. There was mostly peace throughout the entire empire. Uh, they were wealthy. Uh, Caesar Augustus, although he had put into place some senses of a republic, and really at the end of the day he was a dictator. He was in charge of 90% of the world. Caesar Augustus got his way every day, no questions asked. And Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken. And why was a census taken? He wanted to know who was alive so that he could collect taxes from them. So this is uh, really a pain two different ways. First of all, you have to travel to register in your hometown so that therefore you could get a bill in the mail from the IRS. An unplanned trip, the state didn't pay for it, by the way, and on top of that, the whole point was to make sure you paid your taxes. So Caesar Augustus is, has so much power, he's able to send his entire uh, empire on a trip if they lived out of town. Everyone go and, and, and serve me. Caesar is really basically saying the entire empire needs to make sure they are uh, in line with my decree, in line with my purposes, which is properly funding uh, the Roman Empire and properly funding uh, his life, which was pretty amazing to begin with. So Joseph, you know Joseph, he went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Bethlehem, the town of David. Nazareth is about 100 miles to the north of Bethlehem. Your Bible says goes up because it was an up, uh, a travel up in elevation, although they were traveling to the south. So Joseph in the line of David, to travel to the town of David from what town? Nazareth. What comes out of Nazareth? As one disciple said it this way, does any good thing come out of Nazareth? Pokemon Go probably came out of Nazareth. <laughs> That's not a good thing. Okay, that, that was inappropriate, so we'll move along. So he's going. So we have the son of David in the line of the throne of David leaving Nazareth of all places to go to the city of David. And he doesn't even have a place to stay. And what did God tell the people of Israel about David in 2 Samuel chapter 7? Everybody would know this if you were a, a good Jewish man. What was the promise to David? David, there will never fail to be a man of your family on the throne. Your throne, David, will be an eternal throne. It will never end, David, so don't worry about it. So here's Joseph, the steward of the throne of David, so to speak, traveling out of Nazareth down to Bethlehem. It sure seems like Caesar's throne is a lot more eternal than David's throne, doesn't it? I mean, David's throne at this point seems... I don't want to be sacrilegious, we're in church, but it seems kind of lame. I mean, Joseph lives in Nazareth. He's traveling to Bethlehem. And when he gets there, he doesn't even have proper lodging taken care of. And if he did have a taken care of, he was on, so low on the totem pole, he got kicked out. And the contrast between Caesar and the throne of David is intended by Luke to, to be on purpose. For us to say, uh, Caesar's in control David and his family is not in control. Joseph is being uh, knocked about by the whims of a dictator. 
Who is in control in Luke chapter 2? God is in control in Luke chapter 2. Caesar makes a decree. Everybody travels to their hometown if they live out of town. They, uh, the throne of David is, is seemingly humbled and powerless. Joseph and Mary and uh, the soon-to-be baby are going to travel so that they can pay taxes to this great Caesar. Can you believe it? Who is in control in Luke chapter 2? God is in control through the entire chapter. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 didn't happen, and then God suddenly realizes things were getting a little crazy. He'd better intervene. God is in control. God is always in control. God doesn't take breaks. He doesn't go on vacation. Every moment of every day of all of his creation is completely under his control and is moving on purpose in his direction. God is in control. I want to give you three observations from Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7 about what it looks like when God is in control. Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay, good. All right. By all objectives standards, Caesar is in control. I mean, Caesar is getting his way top to bottom. By all objective standards, Caesar is in control. He issues a command, it happens. He has a whim, it happens. If Caesar wants something, it's done. His will is followed always. Otherwise, you could end up dead. By all objective standards, Caesar is in control. Secondly, by all objective standards, Joseph is not in control. What's Joseph in charge of at this point? Getting the donkey, I guess. By all objective standards, Joseph is just being knocked about by the whims of a powerful man. I mean, any casual observer would not think Joseph is in charge of anything. Nobody would think that Joseph is steward to the eternal throne of David, other than by some genealogy he probably keeps on the wall, and people, when they visit Joseph, oh, that's so cute, Joseph. That meant something a long time ago. By all objective standards, Joseph is not in control. He obeys uh, the command of the Caesar. Maybe he uh, does his best to make the best of a difficult situation. But at the end of the day, he can't even provide what's needed. He can, can't provide a fitting room for a baby to be born. He can't provide a, a proper place for them to stay. I mean, even Moses had nursemaids. By all objective standards, Joseph is not in control. And finally, by all objective standards, the throne of David is empty of any power whatsoever. But what difference does the throne of David make in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7? What difference does it make? Is, it gonna, is the throne of David going to oppose the throne of Caesar Augustus? I mean, don't be ridiculous. By all objective standards, the throne of David is empty of any power. There's no political power. There is no religious power, it seems. Certainly isn't any military power. Who is in control? I told you the answer at the beginning. I know, the right answer in church is always Jesus. God is in control. 
There is not one of these moments, there is not one of these events, there is not one single decision where God sort of, oh, that one slipped past the goalie. God is working through the miraculous intervention, the powerful and miraculous intervention of a pre-tax registry. Now, if we could roll back uh, the fabric of time and space and look behind the scenes into what's going on, we'd, we would discover who is really pulling all the levers in all these events. Caesar only appears to be in control and only appears to be in power because God sees fit to do so, but God's whole point is to make sure Jesus is born in Bethlehem because that's precisely what the prophecy would, would indicate is that Jesus would be born in the city of David. God is the one working the levers. God is the one who initiates the registry. God is the one who initiates Joseph having to travel all that distance with his wife and his uh, soon-to-be-born baby. God is the one that ensures that baby Jesus has to end up in a manger instead of a proper bed. God is control. God is in control. God is in control. I don't know. I know tax season is coming up. You don't want to think about it. But when you get the uh, statement from the IRS, uh, or when you send it in, or, you know, August 15th, or what is it? April 15th? I'm going to get a penalty if I do it in August. <laughs> you know, a lot of times we'll think, you know, we got a tax bill due, so God is in control. I'm going to hope for a miracle, and a check shows up. Well, we discover here God is in control in all of that. Sometimes I think we, we improperly divide God's control into this a surprising, miraculous movements of God and then the mundane day-to-day -day life. And here is God doing the miraculous work of bringing the Savior precisely according to His plan in the normal stuff of the society and civilization of Rome. God miraculously provided for the birth of Christ through Caesar, who issued a, a tax decree for everyone to register in their home. And the power of David's throne is not empty of power because everything happened precisely as God intended it to happen. And it's only because we look through eyes of flesh and not through the eyes of the Spirit that we might think that God is totally out of control here. God is navigating and moving all the parts and pieces precisely according to his purposes. God is in control. Well, and the only reason I bring up my three observations about God's being in control is because I think this is the normal stuff of our own life. By any objective standard, it doesn't feel like God is control. It feels like our boss is in control or our spouse is in control or uh, the culture around us. It feels like oh, we're devoid of any power. There's no power to change this situation. And it can seem like, well, God must be, too, well, where's God in this? God must be out of control. And, and what we discover in Luke chapter 2 is God is never out of control. He's always driving all of human history, even our lives, all of our lives, precisely where he means to take us. And it's always according to his good purpose. I'm not sure where you were at when you walked in the doors today, but one thing that would be fantastic for you to leave with is to know God is in absolute, total control. There is not a single thing he has forgotten. There is not a single thing he has overlooked.
then God's glory breaks through in a powerful way with the shepherds. The shepherds, not too far from Bethlehem, are tending their sheep at night, which is a good time to tend your sheep because that prevents them from getting stolen or eaten by animals. They're doing absolutely nothing overtly religious. In fact, they're doing something almost anti-religious at the time, and that is they're being shepherds. The shepherds had a, a fairly low reputation at the time. They were uh, morally questionable. Ethically, they didn't always use great judgment. The work itself that they did as shepherd oftentimes left them a ceremonially unclean for worship at the temple. So most people, when you saw a bunch of shepherds walking through town, would cross to the other side of the street. And God, by the power of his angel, shows up to these shepherds sitting on the side of a hill. Now, what's not in your text, of course, is they were doing a devotional. That's why God saw fit to show up, right? They were having a prayer meeting. They were shepherds. Why does the Bible not tell us what they were doing? Probably because we'd be offended by it. The whole point of the story is God's angel shows up to a bunch of undeserving guys. The good news of great joy is, number one, God is in control, and number two, God loves the undeserving. These lowly, untrustworthy, unclean shepherds. Why didn't the angel show up to religiously pious people? Why didn't the angel show up at the synagogue? Why didn't the angel just go a few meters or kilometers up the road to the temple mount? Why would he show up to these shepherds? God loves the undeserving. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and the uh, shepherds were terrified. Why were the shepherds terrified? Because everybody who sees an angel is terrified, but you're especially terrified if you're not very religious. Back in Zechariah chapter 1, Zechariah chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, Zechariah encountered an angel who was going to prophesy that he and his wife would have a son. And, and Zechariah was a religious man. And he sort of freaked out when he saw an angel, much less these, these shepherds who were irreligious, lowborn and unethical. And the angel of the Lord showed up to them and said, Do not be afraid, because once you get your life good and cleaned up, I'll come back with the good news. Uh, that's a misreading. Again, I want to make sure you're... I mean, this is unbelievable what this angel says to them. Uh, he, I've got good news for you. In fact, news that will bring you great joy to these shepherds. Not too far from this place was a place where David was a shepherd. You can read about it in 1 Samuel. We'll get back to that part of the Bible after the new year. But if you remember, Samuel went to David's father because Samuel was going to anoint a new king because Saul kind of messed things up. And so um, Samuel said to David's father, Hey, get your sons together. I'm going to pray to the Lord, and we're going we're gonna to anoint the son. We're going to anoint the king from your sons. Of course, uh, David said was very ecstatic. We get all his sons. There's tall, dark, and handsome. There's not as tall, but still dark and handsome. And then there's, it kind of works down the line. And all the way, Samuel is going, oh, this guy's, a, this, guy's, this guy's got it. I can tell. This king material. And then God had to keep reminding Samuel over and over and over again, hey, God doesn't look at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And what kind of a king is God looking for? A, a man who will, who will pursue the heart of God, a man after God's own heart. So he goes through the whole lineup of sons, and none of them were picked. 
And Samuel says, what's the deal? None of these guys are picked. Do you have other sons? And he says, uh, I didn't, didn't even think to bring Lamo David. Lamo's in the Hebrew. If you don't, yeah, it's in there. Why? He's a shepherd. So, so good news goes out to David at the sheepfold. David, come, you've been, you've been, you're being called. Everybody's waiting. In fact, Samuel has instructed, nobody can sit down until you show up. Think of it this way. All your older brothers have to stand up until you show up. How long are you going to take to get back? <laughs> yeah, that's right. It took him about three hours. You go, oh, you guys tired? That didn't happen. That's not in the Bible. David was, was called out of shepherding to be the shepherd of God's people. And he was anointed in, in, in an area not too far. This, this was near Bethlehem. That was the town of David. And here these shepherds are encountered now by the, the angel of the Lord who shows up and says, I have good news for you, good news that will bring you great joy. Your Savior has been born. The way the angel phrases this word, he says, a Savior is born to you. He wants the, the shepherds to know this. A Savior is born, specifically your Savior. One who has come to save you guys. Go see him, the angel says. I was thinking about this as I was thinking about these um, shepherds, and I wondered if maybe, um, maybe there was a church nearby, say a church much like ours, First Baptist Church of Bethlehem. I don't think there is one. Uh, but let's just say there. And, and what would we do if we did an outreach to the shepherds? Say we're going to try and go out and meet the needs of the shepherds. Try and get them to a place where they can uh, live a life more in line with the calling of God. And um, We're going to go out and re- do an outreach to the shepherds. We might go out to them and teach them about good ethical business practices. That over time they'll be able to have better uh, business relationships in the community. Uh, because if they have good ethical business practices. Uh, maybe we'll teach them a better morals because uh, the community has helped when people have higher moral standards. And Maybe we'll teach them not to be so violent. Say, listen, guys, we understand that in the shepherding profession, you have to fight off coyotes and bears and lions and, and thieves, but you know, you've got to leave, leave all that violence on the, on the sheepfold. When you come into town, you've got to dial it down, and you can't punch a guy in the face just because he doesn't give you the right, tr- the right change at the cash register. We go out and we say, well, if we're going to have an outreach to these, these shepherds, we want a certain outcome. We want an improved culture, an improved uh, ethics, and improved morals. And I think it's amazing. What's amazing about this angel, he doesn't ask for anything. Go and see, the, go and see Jesus. The, the angel doesn't, he doesn't seem to have any of the ethical or, or, or religious hang-ups we would have with these guys. He says, I've got good news. I want you to experience this good news in person. I want you to see your Savior. He doesn't even qualify it. Now, after you see the Savior, though, we're going to need to get some things in line. We're going to do some follow-up. See the Jesus, and we'll maybe get you into a discipleship program. That probably isn't the right way to say it. But what does the, baby, what does the angel want them to do? Hear good news. Have great joy. That's the whole point. He says, I want you to hear good news and I want you to have great joy. And it says, the shepherds went away with great joy. Why were the shepherds joyful? 
The great thing about unethical, irreligious people is they know, they know they need a Savior more than religious people. An angel shows up to a bunch of shepherds and says, your Savior's here. They go, that's what we need. I can tell you about all the brokenness in my life, they might say. I need a Savior like you would not believe. This is, this is fantastic news. Three observations on God loves the undeserving. You ready? You ready? Three observations on God loves the undeserving. God brings good news, not a good assignment. God brought the shepherds good news, not a good assignment. He told them something to bring them joy. He didn't tell them to do something joyful. God brings good news, not a good assignment. Second observation about God's care for the undeserving. Good news brings light in the dark. Unclean, lowly shepherds at night see the good news of Christ most clear. Because of their need for a Savior in their own hearts is most profound. You would not need to tell a shepherd he's done bad things and he needs forgiveness. He would not need to be convinced of that. Good news brings light in the dark, and unclean, lowly, working at night shepherds see their need most clearly. God brings good news. God, uh, good news brings light in the dark. And thirdly, God brings joy. The good news of the Christ born in the manger is to bring joy. I bring you good news of great joy. The appropriate response to the good news that Christ is born is great joy. The intended outcome of good news that Christ is born is what? Great joy. The, the, the whole idea is great joy. I don't know that we're very good at joy. I'm not sure at what point we got joy robbed. I'm not sure who took it. I'm talking about myself. I, I think we're all included in this. At some point, the good news became average news. And then at some point, the average news sort of became ho-hum news. Jesus was born. What's for dinner? And then suddenly, we have to find joy something, somewhere else. And since joy isn't coming from the good news... Well, then the good news must be for something else. If it's not intended to bring joy, it must be for something else. Well, what else could it be for? Well, to make naughty people less naughty. That seems like it. I mean, wouldn't it feel funny if somebody gave a testimony and says, I met Jesus and, and he made me joyful. Well, yeah, but tell me about what part of your... Normal testimony, buddy, you tell us about all the bad things you did and you met Jesus and the next day all those things went away, right? Yeah, I met Jesus and he gave me great joy. That's, the, that's literally the shepherd's testimony. They've known Jesus about a day. And, and the Bible tells us they went all over the place telling everybody what happened. We met angels. It was about a, a baby in a manger. That was weird. Um, but it was the, the way it was. Uh, he was the Savior. We believe him. Uh, we're forgiven. Now, what happened to your life? Man, I feel joyful. 
Well, yeah, but what are some of the positive outcomes? I feel joyful. I have joy. What are you going to do later? I'm going to go be a shepherd some more. But now I'm going to do it with joy. I'm going to kill that bear with a smile on my face. I don't know why, why I would say that. God brings joy. The good news becomes average news, becomes ho-hum news. It doesn't bring joy, so we have to figure out something else it's supposed to do for us. So what we do is we try to turn it into a sanitizing solution where it just makes us clean people. And then we'll find our joy somewhere else. The fact is, if the, if the good news that we're reading about here doesn't bring us joy, the fact is just quite simply, we've misunderstood the news. That's all there is to it. The, the nature of the news itself, when properly understood, brings joy. When, when, we don't, when, we, when we don't properly understand the good news that Jesus came to die for sinners, that we might have joy in him, we don't, then we don't have joy. We, we try to reduce the news down to something manageable. Jesus saved me from my sin, but now today for the rest of my life, it's a treasury of figuring out how to be a good, clean Christian. The good news was good news then, and it's good news today. You're righteous in Christ already. I think Thanksgiving was Thursday, if I remember correctly. I was telling somebody before church we uh, ate uh, turkey on Thanksgiving. Anybody else? I don't know if that's just us. I might have overeaten. Um, there's a chance that I was in significant physical pain while trying to watch the football game. <laughs> um, it, you know, so I was regretting how much I had eaten because when I was eating it, it didn't hurt. It, ate, it hurt after when I was sitting in the chair and then my son jumped on me, he's three, and oh my lands. And... Um, you know, you're having that moment where you've made a terrible, terrible decision. I mean, I knew it when I was eating with a third helping. This is going to hurt. It didn't matter. It didn't matter. And I just really regretted it. And, um, you know, sin is like that. It's just like when you're doing it, when you're in it, when, when you're into your thing, whatever your thing is, um, you know, I'm going to regret this. And then sure enough, you just feel all kinds of shame and guilt and 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 you just feel like a lame-o, right? Um, you know, what was I thinking? What was I doing? And um, man, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way. And you think, man, it's so much harder being a Christian than just getting saved because when I get saved, then I can say, well, it was all in my past, right? So the, the news for us, for some reason, we get into our heads, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ applies at conversion. So it's great news then. Now, in the Christian life, when we're trying to live a Christian life and we mess it up routinely, now it's just average news. Well, yeah, he forgives me, but he's not happy about it. If he hadn't made all those unconditional promises, he'd kick me out of the family. Or as one commentator said, God loves me, but I don't think he likes me very much. There's no joy because we've reduced the good news down to not really good news. In fact, it's kind of crummy news. It's good news. The blood of Christ has washed you clean again today. 
I don't, I don't know what it was that you carried in here, what kind of shame, what kind of guilt, what kind of burden, but it's still good news. He still sends a Savior for you. It's washed away. Romans 8.1 still applies today just as it applied a year ago and just as it will apply 10 years from now when you're still, frankly, probably messing it up. There is now, therefore, no condemnation. Man, that's good news. Let's, let me think about it through another way, and then, uh, then we'll move on. I like this point, so I'm going to stay on it for a while. How long is it after you really blow it? And let's say you'd never blow it, so your buddy, um, that way your buddy's got a real problem with sin, doesn't he? Say you really blow it. You know, you rooted for the Pittsburgh Steelers last weekend. I'm kidding. I mean, you, whatever it is, whatever your pet little sin is, and, and you really blew it, you did it. I mean, it wasn't accidental either. You planned for it. You schemed and figured out. You set time aside. Okay? You really blow it. How long after you do that can you pray again and feel like God forgave you? I mean, do you ever get that sense? Well, okay, I better wait a couple of weeks. He's got to kind of simmer off. You know, kind of like when you blew it with your dad. You know, he's mad. I better <laughs> give him some space. You ever feel that way? It's like, well, I want... I want. And what's, what's, what's really annoying, I mean, this is what my buddy tells me, is, man, you blow it like that, the next day there's something you need to pray about really bad. Isn't it funny how that works? All of a sudden there's a need. Oh, gee, I've got to pray about... Oh, man, he's not going to listen. Right? I mean, don't we think that way? Well, I better pray about it, but I know he's not going to answer me. I, maybe I'll ask my wife to pray about it. Maybe I'll share it on the prayer chain so people who, who God likes better can pray about it. Okay, so we think, okay, how long do we have to wait until it's okay to pray again? How long is it actually, if our Bible is true about this good news, how soon after you sin and blow can you go to God and he says, hey, welcome home, son? How quick? Like that. Because Jesus paid it all. He didn't pay it all and say, do penance for a week. He paid it all. It's good news. It should bring us joy. Doing penance and avoiding God for a couple of weeks because we really blew it is not great joy. That's me trying to pay for my own sin. Going to God when I don't deserve it because he's just that awesome, that brings great joy, doesn't it? Wait, wait, God, you would listen to me? I mean, did you see what I just did? Oh, yeah, I saw, I was, whew, man, it was bad. And my son paid for it for you. Come on in. Get in here. Why would you wait out there? I mean, this is good news. This is where the shepherds were at. They had absolutely no claim on the person of God himself, and God just shows up, hey, guys, want to hang out? Got good news. And they said, this is, this is great joy. God brings joy. When, the, when our walk with the Lord is devoid of any joy, the fact is we have misunderstood the news. Okay, last thing. I told you I would move on. I'm not going to. Is there anything more annoying than somebody who sins worse than you filled with the joy of the Lord? Doesn't that drive you nuts? <laughs> I mean, nothing. I mean, God, you know what that guy's into. And look how much joy he has. It's irritating. I think maybe he gets the good news. 
I think maybe in that moment we've misunderstood the good news. First of all, we've thought that he sins worse than us. And for some reason, because we haven't experienced joy, we want to make sure nobody else does either. It's good news. I have to offer a caveat, otherwise I would be incomplete to some degree. Some of us get worried, well, this, this news is a little bit too good. Um, if, if this news is really what it is, then people could do whatever they want, and God will still forgive them. Yeah, it really is that good. When the joy of the Lord fills us with news this good, do you think we're going to chase all the empty joys that we used to chase? No, see, that's one of the problems. One of the problems is we think, okay, when I finally get my life cleaned up, I can experience the joy of the Lord, so I won't have to chase all this other stuff. It's backwards. God brings good news to fill us with joy, and then we get offered the stuff of this world. We say, why would I go for that counterfeit joy? That's not real. We think that a bunch of Christians full of the joy of the Lord will for some reason become the most heathen, carnal Christians who've ever lived. Like we have this worry. I mean, don't we worry? Well, if people really understood the good news, they'd do whatever they want. They're right. They will pursue the greatest joy of their life and it will be found in the Lord alone. We need to be discerning and discriminating in how we're going to achieve the greatest joy in our hearts. And when we pursue false joys, it'll just be empty. But when we understand the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he really did redeem sinners like us, we won't pursue these false joys to the degree that we did before. God brings joy. Good news, great joy. What were my two points? God is in control. Amen? All right, yeah, okay, you sort of believe it. (laughs) He said amen, so I know we got to repeat it. Okay. God is in control. Thank the Lord you don't have to feel like he's in control for him to actually be in control. But he is in control. By all our objective standards, you may say there's no possible way he's in control. Everything else is in control. God is still in control today. God is not weak. God is not unconcerned for the significant things that you and I face each and every day. God is not distant. The angel showing up to the shepherd was a means by which he communicated to all of us for all time, God is near. And in Christ, we can draw near to him. God is in control. You cannot mess up bad enough to ruin God's plan. You cannot sin your way out of the purposes of God. If you could sin your way out of the purposes of God, that would make you God. Because you could, you could force his hand. You cannot mess up bad enough for God's control to fly off the wheel, for his, his plan to fly off the wheels. We cannot mess up so bad that God's plan is ruined for our lives. He is in control even in those moments of rebellion and disobedience. On the other hand, no one else in your life can mess up so bad that God's plan for you is ruined. God is still in control when we sin. God is in control when we are sinned against. God is in control. 
And secondly, God loves the undeserving, just like those shepherds, just like you and me. I mean, do we really have anything on those shepherds? The fact is, God loves the undeserving, and the fact is that literally is everyone. But as we see in the shepherds, the, that distinct and special affection of God is going out to those who are well aware of their need, well aware of the, way, of the fact they aren't deserving. Why the shepherds? Because they knew they needed a Savior. They were never going to be able to save themselves. Why not the religious? Because they were still convinced they could save themselves. They weren't any more deserving. They just had no awareness of it. God is in control. God loves the undeserving. Good news. Great joy. Now, Christmas time is a time of great joy. I hope it is. I mean, it's a time of great joy. It can also be a time of stress and anxiety and all kinds of other emotions. But it is a time where I think we purposely try and uh, experience the joy of the Lord. And there's one challenge I could bring to you as we walk through this Christmas season is to understand that that's the intention of God when he brought good news, is for us to be filled with the joy of the Lord, that he has come near by the work of Christ, that he has come to draw us into his family, he has come by the work of Christ to, to offer forgiveness of sins and redemption for those who don't deserve it. And that joy is intended to not just be for a period of time from Thanksgiving uh, till, well, what does it go till? February 23rd now? I don't know. The, the, the joy of the Lord is not intended to just be a season. It is intended to be the result of the good news. That we're filled with the joy of the Lord.